Nicholas for coming on to the Faking It podcast. I'm really, really pumped to have you here. It's really cool that we both went to Stanford and that you've made your whole career has been just really impressive. And not just career, but I would say the way you've lived your life too and like the values that you seem to have from what I was able to read online and learn about you. Uh, and so I kind of wanted to talk to you and share with my, my listeners about your story and starting back at Stanford. Sure. Uh, and so at Stanford, from what I read, you majored, you had majored in three different majors, which was political science, economics, and earth systems, if that's correct? Pretty much. Pretty much? You, it wasn't technically three majors. I completed three majors, but you weren't allowed to have three, so Okay, whatever. got it. So we're going to say that you did do three majors. Sure, then. call it three majors. Let's it's call it three enough. majors. It is. And earth systems, by the way, was my favorite. Earth systems, like 101 that I took at Stanford. That was one of my favorite classes it's I've taken. Great major, great yeah. department. Yeah, I learned so much there. And I was wondering if you always knew that you wanted to be doing journalism, and if so, why did you major in those three categories well I didn't know I was gonna be doing journalism I sort of fell into journalism when I was an undergraduate Mm -hmm. I wasn't quite certain what I was gonna do I didn't really have a plan for post-collegiate life like part of the reason I was able to do so much as a college student Mm -hmm. is because I wasn't thinking about what would happen next Mm. I had a general sense that I would go to graduate school maybe I'll do a PhD in economics But I didn't have a well-thought-out plan for what mm-hmm. happened afterwards. Mm-hmm. So what got you into journalism then? I um, A couple of things. Right. I love writing. Okay. And so I had, you know, I had helped start a newspaper at Stanford. I'd written op-eds for the Stanford Daily. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed that. But I didn't work as a reporter for the Stanford Daily. I didn't go out and collect facts. Mm-hmm. Um, but I had a sense that being a journalist was a way to engage in the world. I had a sense that it was a place for ambitious young people. I had a sense that it would be a fun thing to do. Mm-hmm. And I had a fellowship. It's called a Truman Fellowship for people who are going to go work in public service. And I did that the summer after I graduated. Mm-hmm. And during that summer, I met a woman who worked at 60 Minutes. Cool. And we talked about 60 Minutes. And I then interviewed for a job with her. Mm. Um, and I got hired. Wow. Very exciting. So I was an associate producer at 60 Minutes, which is a great job. Cool. So I spent the fall playing guitar in New Hampshire, you know, trying to evolve as a musician. Mm-hmm. And then I went to New York to start my job. I show up and the executive producer says, who are you? I say, I'm Nick Thompson. I'm the new executive producer. He says, what have you done in television before? I said, nothing. And he fired me on the spot. Wow. So my introduction to journalism was I got hired and then fired at 60 <laughs> Minutes. Whoa. So then continuing my path of making smart decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my closest friends from Stanford mm-hmm. was going to Africa. And he was taking nine months before starting graduate school in England. I said, I'll come with you. And he said, great. So I got my shots, you know, looked at a map, you know, read a little bit about Africa. Mm-hmm. My dad had lived in Ghana when, uh, before I he met my mother. Mm-hmm. And I went. And then on my First day there, I was kidnapped by drug dealers. Mm. Oh my goodness, that's and crazy. Off to a great start in my <laughs> post-collegiate life. Oh my goodness, that's and wild. I was released. I was playing guitar in a train station in Morocco and Tangiers. And yeah. A guy got me back to his house. It was a big mess. Whoa. But the bottom line is I got out. It was fine. Right. And then because of my little forays into journalism and writing out beds, I had a sense of newspapers, editors. I wrote a story about... Mm-hmm. My time in Africa, I sent it to the Washington Post, it got published, and cool. that kind of helped me get into journalism. There'd still be right. a few more twists and turns when I was 22 and 23, 
But by the time I was 24, I had a great job in journalism at the Washington Monthly. Yeah. And I've been doing it ever since. Did that first article that you wrote kind of open up doors for you in terms of getting into like new jobs and things like that in journalism? No, actually. Okay. Um, I mean, it helped, right? And right. I sent it to the Washington Monthly and then the Washington Monthly assigned me a story and then I All did right. a good job of that story and they hired me. But the funny thing is... Okay. I'm not sure I have the chronology totally right, but I applied. I recently found, I was going through my old computer files, a cool. list of all the places where I had applied to work. Mm. And there's like 75 of them, right? And yeah. I applied to work at the Sierra Club, and I applied to work at the Washington Post, and I applied to work at the New York Times. I applied to work everywhere. Right. Uh, I applied to work at an environmental organization, uh, and I couldn't get hired anywhere. Okay. Um, I had got no jobs. I eventually was hired as an intern at Environmental Defense, mm-hmm. then the Environmental Defense Fund. So it was when I got back from Africa, I wrote the story, it ran in the Washington Post. My next step was probably as an intern at mm-hmm. the Environmental Defense Fund. And then I worked at a computer company that a friend of mine had started. And along the way, I wrote a story in the Washington Monthly, and then I was hired at the Washington Monthly. Okay, so there's like a lot of like bouncing around and a lot of failed job applications and right. a lot of rejected, a lot of rejection in those that period of time. Yes. And I think rejection, a lot of people are scared of being rejected they're scared of like pushing themselves out there and constantly applying and so I'm wondering how you dealt with it because I think a lot of people don't know how to deal with rejection when they're looking for jobs when they're trying to do what they want to do do you need advice yeah well it was hard right it was hard because I had done so well as an undergraduate like all Mm. the you know things you're supposed to do you've gotten good grades I'd done well in like all elements and an extremely happy productive experience in college and then you know, the first two years, yeah. fired, I'm kidnapped, I'm like working as a street musician, but I'm not doing that great. I'm working right. for a computer company, it's not going that well. Right. Working as an intern, it's not that interesting. And it was frustrating and hard. The advice is just keep going, right? Mm-hmm. And keep trying and never, mm-hmm. you know, if you apply for something, you don't get it, apply for the next thing, right? You just keep working. And you know, if I try to recreate the path that led me to this awesome job that I got at the Washington Monthly, it's very strange. It was because I wrote that story in the Washington, because I got kidnapped, because yeah. I wrote that story at the Washington Post. That right. certainly helped. And then I was interviewing for another job yeah. at an environmental group. And the woman is interviewing me and I've like shown up in a sweater, not a suit. And we had this interesting moment. I had never heard of the Washington Monthly. So I'm interviewing right. an environmental organization. Cool. I'm down on my luck. And this woman's <laughs> like, I'm not going to hire you, but you seem like a smart, creative person who doesn't quite know what he's doing. I was like, thank you. She's like, you should apply to the Washington Monthly. They hire people like you. Cool. And so I went home. I looked up the Washington Monthly, and I sent them a letter. Then they signed me a story, and then they hired me. Right. Got it. That's how it worked. Mm -hmm. So putting yourself out there kind of opened up new opportunities that allowed you to kind of land your first job and get to where you wanted to be going. Yeah. There was a a lot of luck, a lot of failure. It was, and it wasn't like I was being persistent because I had a philosophy of persistence or someone right. said, you have to be persistent. I just kept trying and it worked out. And I was fortunate. I mean, you know, I was fortunate to not have to take a terrible job. You know, I had this music thing that was going pretty well. It was right. all, everything was like, okay. Yeah, I hear what you're saying. Um, I was living with my girlfriend who's now my wife. Like it was oh, all, cool. certain things were fine. Right. And it helped me during that two-year period, which now seems like a tiny blip. Mm-hmm. I hear that. That's really cool. And that's yeah. what time does to someone, right? Yeah. Each period becomes kind of obsolete in a way because what happens, we just focus on what's present. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
which is really interesting. Yeah. But moving forward, I think that even though what you're saying is true, I think that you have been very brave in terms of like what you've been releasing at these different uh, magazine companies that you worked for. For example, the article you wrote in 2018, the 11,000-word investigation on Facebook was really interesting, I thought, uh, and very investigative. You interviewed over 50 people. Mm-hmm. It was really cool. And um, I was just wondering, as a journalist, what is it like to kind of go after big companies being one person or being some small group of people? How do you face this bravery and how do you like go about writing those tough pieces? Yeah. A lot of a lot of complicated questions. So the the way I like to think about reporting a story like that, and it's not most of my life has been editing or management. It hasn't mm-hmm. so much been reporting, but I've loved the moments where I've gotten to report and to write. Yeah. Um, and the way I always thought of it was, I can't remember the Harry Potter story, but one of the books, you have to kind of go through eight different rings to actually get to or eight different circles to get to the final point. And I feel like that's the way you report a big story like that. Mm. You come up with a list of questions that interest you about a company or a topic. And you start to call people and you're kind of way on the outskirts of what the truth is. All right. And then you meet people who say, well, actually, the way you're thinking about it is wrong. The way it actually happened is this. Mm. Oh, and the person you should talk to is this person. Oh, I've never heard their name. Mm. You should call them. Right. And then you move into kind of the seventh ring and then the sixth ring and the fifth ring. And you get closer and closer to the truth of what happened. So the key to getting a story like that right um, is to have the right instinct. Mm-hmm. for if I pursue this topic, the truth I eventually get to will be interesting. Mm-hmm. To have the right instinct for understanding where you can get from like ring eight to ring three or wherever you end up at, at the end. You don't ever get you know perfect truth. No one has perfect truth to it. Right. And it's very hard to get everybody to tell you everything. Yeah. You're still, you know, I wrote that story about Facebook, right? I learned tons. I talked to all these people, right? Mm-hmm. The story was a revelation. It was read by millions of people. It's a huge deal. Not one person in all those conversations mentioned Cambridge Analytica. Like things had happened at Facebook that I didn't get close to. Like I got a lot of good stuff. We had tons of stuff in that story that no one had ever read. But there's some really important stuff that I didn't read. And in fact, there's probably really interesting stuff that happened at Facebook that nobody saw. So that's kind of question one. How do you report a story like, like that? That's cool. Then the sort of the obstacles that you confront are pretty interesting, right? Because I was editor in chief of Wired then. So there are a lot of reasons not to do that story, right? right? So one reason not to do the story is that Wired's always been a publication about optimism. If you right. do a story, it's going to end up being critical. Like maybe it changes perception of a publication, maybe mm. in a good way, maybe in a bad way. Mm. Maybe maybe it was like a nice demarcation of you know, a moment where Wired became more critical of tech. Who knows? Mm-hmm. That's one risk. Another is Facebook has a lot of money, has a lot of power, gives a lot of money to Condé Nast, right. the parent company. A lot of complexity there. So... You deal with mm. a lot of complex issues, but I suppose the, the reason to pursue a story like that is because it was interesting. It was important. I love the topic. I thought I could figure something out and went for it and it turned out pretty well. Mm-hmm. And have you ever received a lot of backlash for a story you edited or released that caused some sort of like havoc or chaos? Well, there was, I mean, the, the, the follow-up to that story was super interesting. So the mm-hmm. um, story came out, you know, and I got calls from people at Facebook saying, hey, you really got it right, good job. I got calls from people at Facebook saying, hey, you really got it right, but why did you put a bloody Mark Zuckerberg on the cover? You know, he faces death threats all the time. What's wrong with you? 
But then the most interesting thing that happened is that maybe two months later, Wired's traffic from Facebook plummeted, mm. right? A little switch was flipped at the company and Facebook drove, let's say, 25% of our readerships, 25% wow. of our revenue, boom, down like 80%. Crazy. Yeah. And we're like, <laughs> why did that happen? Yeah. And... I spent a lot of time trying to figure out why it happened. It actually, the fact that it happened came up in the congressional testimony. It was like a real deal. Yeah. I never figured out. They, they were like, once we finally like got to the bottom of what was happening, they were like, oh, you know, you had, you ran some sponsored content ad. It was a dark post and it, you know, it was with this advertising partner and it violated our rules on how you run an ad. Okay. It's possible that's true. Right. It's also possible somebody there just flipped a switch. Right. You never know. Right. Mm-hmm. It's very hard to figure out. My, I, and I actually, I genuinely don't know the answer to this. Yeah. Wow. Um, that's wild. It had it affected a lot of Wired's business. Right. So is it possible that I, I am convinced it wasn't someone at the higher levels of Facebook giving an order? Mm-hmm. Like no way. In, for, in part because, you know, I interviewed Mark Zuckerberg not long after that and they wanted that story to be read so they wouldn't have tanked our traffic. Right. But I'm not a hundred percent convinced it wasn't some engineer. It was like, screw those guys. Right. Mm-hmm. So who knows? Very cool. That's wild. It's that's kind of weird. It's kind of weird. Mysterious. Yeah. Yeah. That's very interesting. And yeah. I guess that's something that you have to think about going into these big stories. It's, will this happen? It's possible. And will anything follow up from that? Probably not. You know, it's hard right. to prove anything after that, at that point. Yeah. So you know, I wrote crazy. a second big story about Facebook a year later and I tried to figure out the answer on that. Mm. Couldn't get it. Yeah. That's pretty crazy. Yeah. And so you've done, you've worked at tons of different companies. You worked at The New Yorker, Wired, and now you're here at The Atlantic. Uh, and so I'm wondering, you've grown these companies too throughout when, the time that you've been there at New Yorker. I think you've grown like all, the online reading of like by sevenfold within the first few years that you were there as senior editor. And so I'm wondering, what do you see as a future of journalism? What are articles that are sticky? And does stickiness really equal a metric of quality like reading? Yeah, so I wouldn't say I grew it. It did grow while I was there. I've right. seen the digital side, but there are, the New York was an amazing place and an amazing team. Mm-hmm. On the question of whether, well, so on the question of what the future of journalism is, I'm not sure. You know, mm-hmm. what we're trying to do here at the Atlantic is we're trying to publish the absolute best stories we can. Yeah. And create a business model that supports that work, that is sustainable, mm-hmm. right? To make it so that the Atlantic. What you want is you want the place to be profitable and to publish the best work you possibly can. Right now, we publish the best work you possibly can, but we're not quite profitable. Mm-hmm. We're heading in the right direction. Things are going the right way. Yeah. But we got to make the business model work. And so that means you've got to optimize your advertising. you got to optimize your subscription business and right. figure out third revenue stream. Right. Same sort of playbook I ran when I was at Wired and that I worked on while I was at The New Yorker. So my mm-hmm. hope for at least not the future of journalism, the future of the Atlantic is mm-hmm. continue to do the absolute best journalism possible, mm-hmm. reach people however they're reading, right? Maybe they're reading in print, maybe they're reading online, maybe they're listening to podcasts, maybe they're looking through their goggles, right? Cool. Who knows, right? Identify where they're reading, identify how to best reach them mm-hmm. um, and have a business model that sustains them. On the last part of the question, does quality lead to leadership? Not always. Right. Usually, I mean, mm-hmm. it is definitely the case that if you publish a a good story, it will be read more than if that story was less good, mm-hmm. right? If you take a topic and you write a good story about that topic. It is also the case, of course, that, you know, the best stories you write are not the most read. 
What's interesting is that if you look at readership, let's say there's like a 60% correlation with quality. If you look at subscriptions, there's like an 80% correlation. Mm-hmm. So we just published mm. this incredible story about the child separation policy, surely the best thing we've published this month. Cool. Readership, I don't know, maybe it'll be the eighth, tenth most read thing this month. Right. Subscriptions, it'll probably be first. So mm. there's a closer correlation with the subscription business. Got but it. But there's a reasonable correlation with the traffic business. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. So it has to do with kind of like the business behind promoting a piece or just getting more viewership on something, but it doesn't necessarily translate into subscription. Yeah. So yeah. you can you can publish, like if I were to pull the Parsley metrics right now, the metrics we use, you know, the most read stories would be stories that are like of the moment there broken a bit of news that people are discussing mm. right now the stories that would leave subscriptions are probably closer to the most thoughtful thorough things and right. again you can have overlap between those two categories and if right. you do there's magic mm-hmm. um but sometimes you don't mm-hmm. got it very cool and so yeah i think like what you're doing here and the work that you've done is really cool and you also are a marathon runner That's and true. you have like as you said like a wife and, and kids and i'm just wondering i'm also a marathon runner oh. yeah i ran the new york city this is my first marathon this past year oh awesome yeah which is really cool that's fabulous thank you yeah uh so i did that and so i love running too i ran mm-hmm. today i'm a part of the like brooklyn runners club mm-hmm. we ran around the track this morning like a lot of times by east uh, lower east side oh that one on sixth street yeah yeah awesome mm-hmm so yeah, so love running too. And I'm just wondering how you have time to do it all. And what is your philosophy of life, I guess, in that way? Well, um, I my running is fairly efficient. Mm-hmm. You can see from the running clothes over there and the running shoes, I commute <laughs> to and from work on foot. So cool. it's not that much longer than the subway. So you run in, you run out. Right. If I'm doing a workout, I'll actually maybe go to that track or I'll go run in Prospect Park. Cool. Adds a little bit, takes a little bit of time away from work. but. Right. I actually think, so my philosophy is that, I don't know if it's a philosophy. I think that everybody needs something that isn't work that is like a meditative practice or something that gets them a little bit out of the headspace they're in when they work, Mm -hmm. right? And I have this very intense job and I have kind of, Tense extra commitments beyond the job. Mm-hmm. But having running as this pure constant for the last long time in my life, mm-hmm. I think is a little bit like my own form of meditation, right? So it gives me mm-hmm. a mental break. You're at the end of the day, you finish your job, a little bit of a break. You run home, fresh air, sunlight if it's August, dark if it's you know fall, winter. Wow. Um, you just have a little bit of mental break, you come home family your kids you do all your wonderful things with them and then you know they go to sleep and you go back to work right Mm -hmm. uh and so having running has been a very helpful part of my day so i actually don't think of running takes up time Mm -hmm. but i actually think it makes me a more productive person and then Mm -hmm. a lot of the things you learn in running like the way sort of the discipline it takes to actually get better and the way you process pain and the way you Mm -hmm. prepare for peak performance all of those things actually translate fairly well to the working world mm-hmm. and so i think maybe i'm just justifying an addiction but i <laughs> think that i think that the all the time i spent in running has probably helped me be better at my right. job right 
not I think waking up early, you know, mm-hmm. moving your body. These are all things that help people stay grounded. Yeah. And so I can totally hear where you're coming from. I think for me, I do at least once a week, like no phone or no like headphone runs. Mm-hmm. And I kind of just like run in silence. And that for me is like my meditation, my way to just like think about my thoughts and kind of just be with myself. Yeah. And so I totally get it. It is very meditative and it is about like self-care. Mm-hmm. Uh, mental health so i think that's really cool yeah i definitely think so and when you're training I get the other side benefit which you probably didn't realize until later if you're training hard mm-hmm. only way you can sustain it is actually to sleep pretty well right which actually makes you work better too right so you become yeah. much more disciplined and then you don't like you know if the movie's gonna run for an extra two hours you just you don't watch it you go to sleep right which yeah. is good for your job too Mm-hmm. Yeah, I hear that. Though it's weird now that my like oldest son goes to bed after me, but <laughs> so now you're, he's kind of up when you're going to sleep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Good night. <laughs> yeah, it's like reverse of the way it's been his whole life. That's pretty funny. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so this podcast is called Faking It because it's about fake it till you make it, being empowered. And I was wondering if there's ever been a time in your life where you kind of had this opportunity that you didn't know if you can do it and you kind of faked it and then make and then made it or not. Is there any example that you can share with people? Well, I mean, every job, right? You always yeah. to a certain degree fake it. But I think that probably, let's see, when did I most fake it? <laughs> um probably at the New Yorker and so what happened is I was hired at the New Yorker as a senior editor and the New Yorker back then was all print had a Mm -hmm. very did not have an ambitious digital strategy okay Uh, this is 2010 and so I'm a print editor for two years I get the job and I think I'm going to be doing it for 25 years right because nobody ever leaves the New Yorker it's like if you're going to be a print editor it's the absolute wonderful place to be a print editor cool so I go there and then after about but I'm also like slightly techier than the average person at the New Yorker, right? Mm-hmm. Like I can fix the printer. And <laughs> at some point, David Remnick, who's the boss and who I adore, uh, decides he wants there to be an ambitious web strategy. He puts this fabulous woman, Amy Davidson, who moves her over from print to web. And then you know, one day he comes in my office and is like, I want you to be the web editor. Cool. And I was like, I'm on the bed. It's like, take your time, think about it call me tomorrow and say yes right like (laughs) (laughs) um and you know you just you do what david remnick tells you to do right Right. and so i did it and uh so suddenly i'm the web editor but i've got to run a whole publishing team hire Mm -hmm. people there's so many things that i had never done before right Right. we had to then we had to build out a paywall strategy digitize the archive transfer Mm -hmm. cms's i had to hire i remember not knowing there's been a product manager and a project manager but i had Mm -hmm. to hire them right um and so I was really learning on the fly. Yeah. Um, and wasn't total faking it, right? It's related right. skill sets, right. but, you know, I was, let's just say I was learning a lot every day. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think it's actually interesting, related skill sets. It's kind of maybe a way to justify going into something that you don't know if you necessarily can do. Yeah. If you have like contextual knowledge around what it is, and then that kind of just helps you and like gives you that confidence to be like, okay, I don't know what I'm doing, but. I've done, I've worked in this field, maybe I can figure it out. And it's mm-hmm. kind of a way to give yourself that confidence or just at least go for it, yeah. you know? I mean, and so, for, so for Remnick, right? Yeah. When he had to decide whether to, he decided one morning, woke up, wanted an ambitious web strategy, right? Yeah. You can hire someone who's worked at another digital publication, run an online news service, but doesn't know The New Yorker. Yeah. Or you can hire someone who's worked at The New Yorker, but hasn't run an online news service, right? Choose right. one or the other. And 
clearly he felt like my understanding and Amy's understanding of how the New Yorker worked, what a New Yorker story is, who the New Yorker writers are, was more valuable than bringing in someone from the outside who'd worked at a different kind of publication, but knew like, knew the rules of social media and knew all that stuff. Right. Got it. And it worked great. We Mm -hmm. worked out, we had a great run there. That's awesome. Yeah. So last few questions. Do you have any advice for like people who are just trying to do their next thing, maybe go into journalism, maybe go into something they care about, but just don't have that like courage to make that step? Well, right. So the obvious, so yes, have the courage, keep going, but then how do you, how do you have the courage to take that step? How do you, how do you have the courage to like go up to bat again after you strike out? Mm, Right. Um, and I don't know now it's so ingrained, right. That if I fail at something, I'm eager to go take the next at bat. I don't know how to convince someone, Mm. how to teach that skill to someone at 22 or 23 there i will give one piece of advice that um i think was super useful to me and it's it's something i think about a whole bunch which is that the one of the most useful things i did early in my career and i didn't do it intentionally but when i was at the washington monthly and i was i would have been 24 when i was hired i worked there a couple years Mm -hmm. i um i got to know everybody who was a journalist at that Mm -hmm. age and they all became my friends i edited them and they weren't important journalists then, but it's now, mm. right? We just ran a story today. I didn't even know it was going to run by like somebody I met when I was 22, 23, wow. who's now a 47-year-old like important law professor, right? Like yeah. we're doing a partnership with someone. Like so the people cool. who you work with in those days, you know, I often will tell the story of this guy named Brendan Kerner, who's, you know, same age as me. And I edited a book review he wrote at the Washington Monthly, both 24 years old, right? And he's not known journalist I'm not a known journalist but then you know he writes a book and tells me about his agent I use the same agent he always works for a foundation right. foundation gives me a grant right I, yeah. he goes to Wired he gets me hired as an editor at Wired I yeah. go to the New Yorker he comes and writes for the New Yorker right, right? like yeah. the piece of the Atlantic right like our lives you know have just sort of like constantly over because I love working with him he loves working with me right right our career is just and we learned that when we were both 24 and then his career gets better my career gets better and it all works out pretty well so right. there's this it's not like networking, which sounds so superficial, but it's getting to know folks in your field. And some of them will leave and they'll go do totally different things. And mm-hmm. some of them will, your career will sort of run in parallel. And so a lot of times people are like, oh, you know, they're advancing the career and figured out, I got to go meet the editor of this publication. Mm-hmm. It's true. It's helpful. It's good. But it's also, it's also really good just to get to know your peer group because your peer group's going to keep going in the field and mm-hmm. you'll get to have all kinds of interesting collaborations and partnerships in the future. Yeah, that's very interesting. That's really good advice, too, mm-hmm. just to tell people to kind of stay in touch with the people that they know and try to utilize their friends as connections in the workplace, too. And then right. I guess the other thing I would say yeah. is that I don't I don't know if I regret any, like every time I made a choice to do something kind of crazy or strange, Yeah, I don't re- regret any of those choices. Like I, I Like the choice to go to Africa, even though I got yeah. kidnapped, was hugely important and beneficial right the choice to like try to make it as a street musician was super interesting i learned a whole bunch right Mm -hmm. like they're at different stages in life you have different constraints on the choices you can make and the experiences you can have and at a young age before you know before you have children who are in school or you're married to someone who's not you can't move to a different city like the amount of options you have available are much higher in a way that one doesn't quite realize at the time Mm -hmm. and i didn't quite realize you know when i went to africa when i was 
23. And then when I went again, when I was 26, that like, that would be the last time I go. Right. Right. right? Yeah. I kind of thought, oh, I'll just go all through my life. But then you have kids, right? You can't leave your kid to go to Ghana for a week. Right. Like maybe, maybe you can, maybe you can't be, you know, right. um, it it's just becomes so much harder. Yeah. So like optimizing for interesting experiences. Yeah. Even if you're not exactly sure what they're going to bring you, mm-hmm. it's super helpful. So I'm glad that I like inadvertently made a bunch of choices that optimized for interesting experiences. Mm-hmm. And it seems like you learned a lot from them too. So. Definitely, definitely. Yeah. And like I, like the sort of the boring choices, I, I'm regret. Mm-hmm. Got it. Very cool. Yeah. Is there any like book or article or anything that you've read that like has informed your life decisions or something that? has really transformed you in any way that you want to share with people? Um, you know, the thing that was, I think, most helpful to me is I um, I wrote a book about Paul Nitz and George Kennett. So it was a history of the two of them through the Cold War. Nitz was my grandfather. It's called The Hawk and the Dove. Kennett oh, cool. is the great dove, you know, pushing American foreign policy for 60 years. Nitz is the great hawk, you know, arguing for you know, more and more weapon systems. They argue against each other 60 years, but they remain friends. But it was the process of studying Kennan's life deeply and under, looking at the way he thought about the world and the process of studying how those two people operated and worked, I think about all the time. So part of the book was like, cool. I'm going to tell a story about the Cold War. It's an interesting story. Like, I love it. It's, but I also, just by really studying two extremely successful, extremely interesting people, learned a ton that influences me every day. Mm. What's one thing... Well, so back, okay, so this is an interesting, one of the details that I love about Nitsa is, uh, I was just talking to my my son about this yesterday. Cool. Uh, He he got fired all the time. And he worked for something like 11 presidents and got fired or demoted by eight of them. Right. And most people in Washington, like if you're the assistant secretary and you get fired as the assistant secretary, you... You go off and you go work for a think tank or you write books and you don't come back in. If you're going to go back into government, it has to be at a level higher than assistant secretary. And what yeah. my grandfather did is he would get fired and he'd come back, you know, as the deputy assistant secretary. And he'd work his way back up and he'd get fired and work his wow. way back up. And I've always thought, like, so I'm CEO right now. If I get fired as CEO, like, I hope I don't. Um, <laughs> I'll go back and I'll be a writer or I'll be a senior editor, like, and I'll just, you know, keep going, right? Yeah. And, like, you know, come back in like if I get fired I'll probably take two months and go hiking right maybe I just hiked on the Appalachian Trail yesterday with my son maybe I'll nice go hike on the Appalachian Trail for two weeks but then I'll come back and I'll try to get a job at whatever level I can get a job yeah um and it's a good lesson about resilience Mm -hmm. about you know Nitsa my grandfather just like believed deeply in influencing public discussion about these issues maybe he was right maybe he was wrong in the arguments he made but all he wanted to do was to do that and mm-hmm. he was willing to just constantly you know get back up on his feet right you know, wouldn't stay there licking his wounds wouldn't like complain that it was all unjust and like mm-hmm. you know they don't like people like me or they you know they're you know it's all unfair you know if the ref made a bad call he's just right. like okay i'm gonna come back in and i'm gonna win next time so mm-hmm. i love that it reminds me of the Greek mythology about like rolling the hill up the rock just continuously. Oh, yeah, <laughs> that's funny. Yeah, and kind of the rock being actually something that you love to do. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter what that's level on the mountain you're on, you know, as long as you're just rolling up that rock, it makes you happy. Yeah, so. I guess, right. So he never reached the peak he wanted. Right. He always wanted to be like Secretary of Defense or Secretary of State. He never got there. Mm-hmm. So that's the top of the hill, but he loved pushing the rock. Yeah, 
Cool. That's beautiful. I really like yeah. that. Well, yeah. thank you so much for coming on this podcast. Well, I thanks think for that's inviting me. It's a great podcast. Thanks for uh, thanks for inviting me on. And yeah. uh, always a pleasure to talk. And I'm excited to see what happens next for you. A rich man's world. I have turned the song of this